This is the Humans of Gaming Podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. from Love Thy Nerd, you're listening to Humans of Gaming. I'm joined as always by my co-host. I had to think about what you were. Chris Gwaltney. Hey, Chris. Did you want us to like cohort or... Cohort, co-conspirator, co-person. Cobro. Cobro. (laughs) That's awful. Uh, Hey, I'm Chris. I'm the chief executive nerd for Love Thy Nerd and cohort of Drew for this podcast. That's right. We have a very special guest today, and that's Karen Schreier. Did I say that right? I could have asked you. You did. It was Aww. awesome. All right. Drew is notoriously like he's confident, like he goes for it in pronouncing people's names, but sometimes it's a miss. So I'm happy for you, Drew. You did it. Thanks, man. It means a lot. Uh, so you're a professor of. Um, well, you investigate games. You study them, I guess. Who? How would you describe what you do? You do a lot of things, and you've written a lot on the subjects of games and play and understanding games. Yeah. How, how do you introduce yourself in the work that you do? Oh, wow. I guess uh, I would say that I am a designer, a researcher, and an educator. So all things games, everything from designing games to understanding the social impact of games to researching how games might support our understanding of humanity. Yeah. I, so um, not much. Just yeah, not much. I like to make stuff, but I also like to teach others how to make oh. stuff. And then I also like to write about people making things. So I like I like all different kinds of things, which is kind of what's awesome about being a professor. Yeah, yeah. So you're the you're an associate professor of games and interactive media at Marist College. Is that right? Yes. So I am the uh, associate professor and director of games there. It's a small liberal arts college about two hours north of New York City. Okay. Great. And you've written some books about game design and the value and the importance of play, I believe, right? Or and edited some books, Ethics and Game Design and Learning and Education in Games are two of those those books, correct? Yeah. So I have uh, edited a book series called Learning, Education and Games that is a collection of all different articles on everything from how to design games to how to use games in the classroom. Actually, we're coming out with a brand new book, which is going to be 100 games to use in the classroom and beyond. And it's 100 different games where each there's 100 different chapters on all different games, everything from, you know, you name it, Fortnite to uh, much, much more uh, specifically educational games. But we've got Minecraft. We've got, you know, your your kind of like favorite uh, commercial Mm -hmm. games as well in there. And that's going to probably be out this summer. I'm also working on another book right now that I'm authoring myself, which is using games to teach ethics and civics. Oh, cool. Which is super exciting. So my question is, do you sleep? Uh, You know what? (laughs) Because that's a lot. You got a lot going on. I I really didn't sleep. But lately I've been sleeping. (laughs) It's kind of strange, actually, because I went from being this 
night owl where I would be up until like almost 5 a.m. every oh, morning goodness. working and writing and doing all these things. And, and I was like that my whole life. And then last year, everything changed suddenly. And now I can't stay up past 11 p.m. So I don't know what uh, happened. But now I sleep. Well, because you were telling us you have kids, too. So like, did that change when you had kids? Because you said you had a was it seven and four year old? No. Yeah, I do. I do have kids and they don't sleep. Uh, <laughs> but actually, in the last year, they've started finally to sleep. Mm-hmm. And I, I have too, which is nice. Yeah. Um, but before that, they really didn't sleep at all. So I, I really didn't sleep for a good six years straight. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was, those were fun, fun six years. I, I, you know, it's interesting. Like, how did I survive on so little sleep? I, most of it was just that I didn't, you know, it's like one of those things where you just don't know what you're doing mm-hmm. at the time. You're just kind of like sleepwalking through life. And that was me. Hmm. Yeah, I don't like to sleep, really. I, it's hard for me. <laughs> I don't sleep well, and then I don't spend a lot of time sleeping either. And I don't know, like, what that's doing to my body. It's probably not good, but... Uh, yeah, you'll be fine. I feel pretty alert. I feel like I'm, I don't feel like I'm sleepwalking through life but uh, yeah but I, well you know i didn't realize how different life is when you actually sleep because mm. <laughs> I, I hadn't slept my whole life really so all of a sudden in the last year just like not feeling just completely awful all the time <laughs> it's been really nice and you don't know what clicked <laughs> like it just kind of happened yeah it's so weird i don't know either it's just something changed it maybe i you know i entered my 40s or something i, I don't know I, I became an old person and now i now i actually like sleeping maybe that's the start difference eating before dinner at 4 i did not like sleeping and now i like sleeping so. <laughs> well good well, well there's hope for you yet drew yeah i may, I may have to try it out this week yeah. i'll put that on my to-do list get some sleep uh so but no i'd be curious to hear like so your game knowledge games uh, the subtitle is how playing games can solve problems create insight and make change um i and it's interesting too i thought about you know this book you're writing about 100 games that can be used for educational purposes like there's a lot of people that i think like that's a big part of what we do at love thy nerd is we want to highlight the value of things in nerd culture including video games um and it's a big part of this podcast too so we're like bought in to that whole premise but I think there's some people listening to this who maybe aren't, or maybe there's people who are listening to this who have people in their life who aren't, and they need they need to learn how to talk to those people, and, yeah. <laughs> like talk them down from the cliff of thinking that games are evil or or a waste of time or like destroying their relationships or something. So I'd be curious, like you know, what, what when you talk to people, give us like some of the some talking points when you talk to people who are like, you write about games and how they can help people solve problems and things like aren't games just a waste of time. Aren't they ruining uh, the brains of children? (laughs) Uh, I'd be curious to hear your your response. Yeah. Well, I definitely hear that all the time. Uh, And, you know, first of all, I am a parent. And when I tell other parents that I work with games, sometimes they look at me with horror (laughs) and, you know, like I am the person who is going to, you know, change their kids into zombies uh, of some kind so i totally understand that perspective uh and i hear it a lot 
Um, but I would be suspicious of anything that someone says was all completely amazing and good and great or all completely bad mm -hmm. and just, you know, totally always awful. Yeah. I mean, sure, there are some things that we know are just just not good in our lives. But when you have something that's as diverse and versatile as games or really any media that's out there, it, there's so many different ways you can use it. There's so many different ways you can design with it. There's so many different kinds of people that are interacting with it. It's so complex. Yeah. Uh, we could never just make a blanket statement about an experience. It's like saying that all books are good or all books are bad or that all language, every sing single thing that comes out of our, our you know, our um, mouths is good or bad. Right? right. There, There's so much versatility there that we could never make such a strong statement either way yeah um so what i usually say is that you know just like anything there's trends and there's limitations there's ways that we could use games in a constructive pro-social way mm -hmm. um just like we could also use them to highlight the cruelty and uh you know underbelly of humanity sure. so and both are there, both exist. And, you know, I think that we just have to be okay with that. So I'm, I'm particularly interested in how we can use games to support pro-social behavior, like supporting empathy and compassion, uh, care, ethical thinking, uh, civic engagement. And you might wonder, well, like, what are some of those conditions under which we can do that? And there's so many, I mean, there's so many, and there's so many different ways that we can do that. But, you know, one is, that through games, possibly we could use role playing and have people take on different roles and try out different perspectives and mm -hmm. understand perhaps other people's perspectives. Um, we can have them interact with a system. A game is a system, a complex system. And through that system, we can, um, you know, the, the game system, we can kind of push and pull on different variables. We can push on the boundaries of the game and we can understand that system better in ways that perhaps we can uh, reveal system um, systemic biases or systemic issues that exist in our real world. Uh, those are just like two examples, but there's so many others. I mean, we, we can use story and immersive, um, immersive worlds to understand what other people have gone through, similar to what a film might do. Um, yeah. or even a television Can series. you give us some uh, examples of like games that shine in those two ways that you mentioned or that you sure. maybe so, taught with using? Yeah, well, one of the games that I like to teach with um, that I think shows compassion and perhaps helps people practice empathy is called That Dragon Cancer. Mm, and yeah. this is a game yeah. that it's, you know, it's an indie game. It's, uh, it was created by some folks the green family who actually lost a child right yeah to cancer and they created a game about what it was like to go through the cancer treatments to mm -hmm. grieve over their son who was dying of cancer and in, in remission of from cancer um but then came back um and then uh then losing him so um, he was part, he was even part of the process of creating the game and he actually died during the creation right. of the game. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a very powerful game because it's so personal and it shows such a authentic look at what it's like to lose a child and also to be in a hospital and going through treatments and just the, like the trauma of that in and mm -hmm. of itself. 
is very difficult. And I use that game a lot in class, actually. So I teach a ethics and gaming class. And one thing I say about this game is, you know, some some students, it might be too much for them. You know, it's, it's actually yeah. so powerful and so, so real and so raw that I say, you know, if it's too much for you emotionally, then you do not have to participate. And every mm-hmm. year there's always one student who it's just, you know, maybe they lost a parent mm-hmm. or a sibling yeah. to cancer Um or, you know, they just have some connection to loss that it's just, it's, it's just, you know, too uncomfortable for them. I've had that game. Um, but for the rest of the students, um, and, and, you know, for me even, it, it helps us to connect with what it means to lose someone. Yeah. And it's such a human thing, right? It's such like to, yep. to lose a person. Um, that's, that's, that's part of being human. And one thing I tell them is that it helps me connect to them better because it helps me to be more vulnerable in um, sharing that I've lost a child and that I also spent months in the hospital with my other child. Mm -hmm. And while I did not have the same exact story that the Greens had with losing their child, um, the game shows a a glimmer of that, that, that helps me to share the pain mm-hmm. and um, of, of my own loss. Yeah. Um, and it's something that people don't really like to hear about. You know, they don't like to talk right, about loss. Yeah. But through the game, I think it's easier to talk about it. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, because as someone who's experienced similar type of loss, like, so would you say for you personally, it was beneficial for you? I mean, you, you obviously were able to get through it and you even use it in your classroom. So, so was as someone who's experienced a similar type of loss, like how did, how did the game sit with you? I, I, I'm interested in particular because we've like, we've had them on this podcast actually. Um, well, before this podcast was under a different name and we, we interviewed them. Um, yeah. we, we, we actually got to hang out with Ryan and Amy a few times. I would, I would count them friends of, of ours. Uh, yeah. So anyway, but yeah. So sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No. It's and I think that's uh, well. Okay. So they made this game, right? And mm-hmm. uh, I think part of uh, perhaps for them, part of uh, coming to terms with their grief was through expression of that grief through a game. And I think there's something about creation and sharing that creation with others that helps you come to terms with your own grief and feel more connected to other people. And I think the same um, can be said for me. Um, I actually, one of the, one of the things you do when you're going up for tenure is that you get observed by different people. And in the class where I use that dragon cancer, I happen to be observed by my Dean, who's like my big boss at at, uh, Marist. And she asked me, she said, you know, how, given what you've gone through like how like i'm you know how are we able to play this game like it's so um you know because she you know she understood because she knew what i had gone through and right you know and and a lot of people might ask like well how could you play it like it's just too hard and i said no actually it's the opposite It, it is hard and i think it's hard for anyone to play the game um but but on the other hand it helps me feel like now other people understand a mm. little more of what I went through yeah. and that makes me feel less alone mm-hmm. and that um, the not talking about it is what isolates you and makes you feel worse about it. At least for me. I mean, mm-hmm. I like that there are uh, that there's media out there that can reflect parts of what I went through so that other people out there 
can understand me better. Yeah. And I can share some part of me out there with others as well. That that is about that is to me what what human compassion is all about. It demystifies it or like de-taboos it or something, you know, for people. Definitely. And I think that, you know, that's why we share stories. Mm-hmm. You know, we want people to understand what we've gone through and and the steps that we've taken to get where we are Mm -hmm. Uh, we have a drive to want to express and share and connect with others and i think that's what media is about you know it is about sharing information and it is about um you know trying to connect but it's also about sharing those stories and trying to uh tell others because we you know we can't fully enter into someone else's world you know we can't fully enter into someone else's life but through stories and through media we can at least get a little bit of a glimpse into who they are and and what kind of makes them tick well i think uh i'm sure you this is kind of what you're saying too i think with games specifically beyond like movies or books like games put you they give you that agency so even more so i think they can put you in the the driver's seat or in an empathetic, more empathetic position than even like a movie or books could. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a different experience when you are enacting or performing part of that story, when you are making choices and decisions that relate to it and seeing the effect of those choices on the world that you inhabit. Um, But, you know, again, it's just, it's, it's another way. I don't think it's a necessarily a better way. It, you know, it sure. could be a better way depending on the story or the mm-hmm. the uh, connection that you're trying to express. But it's it's another way. It's just it's another way of connecting to people. Uh, and through that connection, you can have uh, all the unicorns and puppy dogs and rainbows of of love and care. Um, you can also have um, you know the the cruel, dark, evil underbelly of, of toxic culture online, you know, so there's, um, you have a spectrum of connection that, um, you know, could be quite antisocial or could be quite Mm pro-social. Yeah. And I think that that's like, you're hitting on, I think what a lot of people are struggling with the industry today, because it can be super toxic. Like, um, the games industry doesn't always have a great reputation, uh, when you think about uh, it, the way the many video games depict women, for instance, or another example would be um, like what you mentioned with online toxicity um, being a pretty big problem in the industry. So I think like there's some people that see all that and just go like, well, I don't, I don't have anything to do with this. Um, but I think from what I hear you saying, it sounds like maybe, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you would say, well, you're missing out on the potential, though, that this medium carries with it um, for human expression and for, for you know, telling true stories that will help us understand each other better. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just, I guess I'd be curious what keeps you going in this industry when it is like, it is, it, it can feel like an oppressive industry, I think. Uh, but you, yeah, I mean, but you keep going. And, you know, yeah, work, well, uh, investigate it and understand it and help other people understand it. Yeah. You know, it is it is difficult, you know, and, and I think that most people who are not in the mainstream ideal of what a gamer or game player is supposed to be, um, you know, the the white male, heter- you know, heterosexual kind of yeah. myth of who uh, uh-huh. someone's supposed to be. If you're not 
exactly that, you know, if you're not, you know, that person, that ideal, if you vary from that in any bit, you do feel like you are climbing up a very high mountain and there's just boulders rolling at you all the time. It's like being in a Super Mario game where you're just constantly getting lava spit at you. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're kind of ducking and you're jumping and you're moving around trying to escape it because the path is harder and you start to question, like, do I belong in this community? Because I am being told by everyone, um, whether they mean to or not, that I systemically do not belong here. And it's difficult sometimes, but this is something I care about. It's something I uh believe in and i'm passionate about so i guess that keeps me going i you know i've i've always loved gaming i've also i love gaming today because i get to do like i said before so many different things Mm -hmm. i mean games touch upon all areas of humanity it touches on technology and science and humanities and how humans behave and to me, that's interesting. That's, you know, it's, it's art, it's, it's science, it's, um, you know, it's, it's humanistic. And I love all of that. So to me, games are kind of a pinnacle of just every interdisciplinary connection that yeah. is possible. Um, that keeps me going, that variety, that versatility, that diversity of the potential of all you can do with it. In, and all you can write about it and all that you can teach about it. Um, yeah. It's always changing. It's always evolving from, you know, from the day I started at Marist in 2011 until today in 2019, it's completely changed mm-hmm. and it's going to keep changing. And I mm-hmm. love that. You know, I'm the kind of person who likes to be constantly growing and changing and, and evolving. So to me, that's exciting. Um, but yeah. I do agree that it is, it's, it's a harder path. Like I took the, you know, when you, like you're in, you have the two choices in a game and you like, should I take the, you know, rainbows <laughs> and sunshine path and there's no monster, <laughs> Paragon or, or renegade like, and mass effect like rambles and vines and, um, you know, lots of things getting thrown at me. I took the brambles path. Um, and, but that's more interesting to me, so it, mm-hmm. it it worked for me. Yeah, no, that's great. And I'm, I mean, I'm really thankful that there's people out there in the world doing the kind of work that you're doing in games because um, I, I do think, like, I just had a friend confess basically on Facebook that he's struggling with whether or not you know he wants to continue working in the games industry and is probably going to get out of it because, and just kind of shared like. Hey, by the, and by the way, like I've got tons of stories about like people who this industry has chewed up and spit out, you know, um, yeah. and he worked for some big studios and he worked also worked in, um, well, I shouldn't say more than that because people will start to guess who it is, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, and I want to respect that, but, um, but yeah, you know, I think there is a tendency among some people to just be overwhelmed by the things about it that are frustrating and that are oppressive. Um, but we need people out there studying it and helping us think about it more carefully so that we can engage it more responsibly and so that we can engage it in a way that's like, um, for lack of a better word, like life-giving to people rather than than harmful, um, you know? And so so I, I sense that in you, like this desire to help people get the most out of yeah. 
their time with the game. And that can't, that can only have a good impact. I mean, like on, on the industry, not just on like gamers themselves, like, but also on the industry as a whole, like the type of work you're doing, it has the potential to help like publishers and studios do better work, which is really like an encouraging thought. I think actually it's even, I would, I would agree with that because I think that I'm trying to get people to get the most out of games, but you know, hopefully the most out of life as well. But even more directly, I'm, I'm a, a fellow with the EDL, which is the Anti-Defamation League this year. And we are working to try to get more directly um, to support game studios in creating these kinds of games that have, um, you know, maybe are supporting compassion and empathy mm. and, you know, thinking through uh, things like bias and, and identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah, this year I created a game jam guide. So what we did was we hosted a bunch of game jams all over the country. So everywhere from Austin to Atlanta to New York City and uh, California and Seattle. And we um, we created a game jam, which was which had the theme of identity. We worked with the global game jam to help organize it. And I also did research on it. So I actually researched not only like looking at the games that were made at the game jam by the way do you know what a game jam is before i go further for anyone out there who doesn't know what a game you jam should, is kind yeah, of like a, hackathon. It, yeah. um, a hackathon is like this kind of intense period where you're creating something with a game jam you're creating a game so you're kind of like not showering and not eating i'm kidding <laughs> you're eating you're showering you're sleeping but you are working like in this intense period of usually a weekend where you're going from start to finish creating a game and there's usually a theme and our theme for this game jam was identity Hmm. and i created a guide to support that as well which is free and available and evidently going to be in the congressional record because it was um brought up today in fact um some kind of congressional hearing so that's exciting uh and i could uh, share with you the link to that guide soon um after this podcast But what I did was I also researched not only the games that were created, but I researched through the game jam. So working on the design practice itself, does that support perspective taking and help people uh, come to terms more with their identity and express and explore their identities? And it's just been really exciting because what we're trying to do now is, as a result, thinking about how do we translate that game jam into something that is more of like a, a module or like a, an event that can take place at a game jam, uh, game studio. So in the game studios can have us come in and help support doing, you know, maybe part of it is identity exploration exercises and maybe some anti-bias work, but through the actual design of a game that um, the anti-bias work is integrated into that. So it becomes this anti-bias event, um, but also a game jam. And it kind of, the hope is that it helps everyone feel more included and feel more like they belong, mm-hmm. but it also hopefully will help even those people who maybe are like, oh, anti-bias events, that sounds really boring, or I don't want to do that, or that sounds stupid, that's, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't want to be part of that, mm-hmm. but like through the game design process, maybe, you know, they will start to engage with those kinds of, uh, you know, those kinds of concepts and those kinds of um, just 
you know, exercises and you know, get more involved in it. So that that's my hope. I mean, we'll see how it turns out. But so far, it's been exciting and, and really rewarding. I just yeah. love like hearing just the passion and care, I think, that you're taking in all this stuff. Like it just comes through so clearly. I mean, I've never met you before today. And uh, I just I really appreciate that about you. And I think one of the things that we try to do or hope to do when we have people on is like get at where that came from or like where that started. So like where where did you grow up? Like what was that like? Um, yeah. Wow. I don't know. I, I think I. I think that in general, if you met me, I come across as like a very low key, quiet kind of person. Um, but if you get me talking about something that I am passionate about, I am super enthusiastic sure. and very expressive about it. So I think that I kind of uh, have those two different sides to me where I do like to meet people and listen and kind of take in all of all of that is that is around me, but then I also will put out um, the excitement and passion that I've drawn drawn from others. Uh, but where did I grow up? I grew up on Long Island, which is in New York State. Yeah. I specifically I grew up in the Stony Brook, Setauket area, mm-hmm. um, close to SUNY Stony Brook for those who are familiar with it, as well as close to Port Jefferson, which is kind of like a tourist hotspot. Um, you know really had a good childhood with uh, kind of an amazing public school that I went to, which was Ward Melville High School. It uh, had this amazing, amazing science program in it at the time it was called West Prep. I don't know if they have it still, but it was uh, based on the Westinghouse uh, competition, which is now Regeneron. It's the science talent search competition. Mm-hmm. And I did that when I was in high school and I was a semi-finalist and it was amazing. It was one of the best moments of my life uh, working in a lab. So I got to actually work in a science lab when I was in high school and that was awesome. I worked at SUNY Stony Brook and I also worked at Brookhaven National Lab. And it was just, I just got to do these things that were just amazing for a high school student to really, I was basically acting like a postdoc, but as a high school student, and I got to do real world science. And it's been, you know, work on these projects that were, you know, everything from like building bridges to creating mouse traps to working on egg drops. And I got to work on these very creative science projects that were just super exciting through this West Prep program. And I think that I just really lucked out that I have that kind of community, have that kind of ability to express my passions in all different ways in my uh high school when did the like um how did games become a part of that because i think what you're sharing like that okay we get that the sort of science research investigative side but when did games become a part of that like was that from a young age you're playing games or when did that kind of enter into it i mean i the thing is like i've always been playing games i got an atari 2600 from my uncle when i was a kid and we had the Nintendo. I, I mean, I remember getting that Nintendo for one of the holidays and just being just so excited. And that's what yeah. I did as a kid. You know, we just, I didn't know that girls weren't supposed to play games. Like that was never <laughs> expressed. They didn't, we didn't, yeah. no one talked about that. Um, so I just played games with my friends or with my brother or we just all, you know, when I went to a sleepover, we all played games. Yeah. Like that's what we did. We played 
video games, we played board games. Um, when, whenever my grandparents would come over, we, I would stay up late, you know, past midnight playing Rummicub with my grandmother. <laughs> so like that, we just, that's what we did. Like yeah. we would sit yeah. around the like Apple IIe and play Maniac Mansion. Like we would just play games. That was a great like, game. We were just always there. So it never dawned on me until like I was in my twenties and people were like, Oh, you play games? Like, I can't believe you play games. Yeah. I'm like, what? no one thought that girls weren't supposed to play games that became like a thing all of a sudden um 20 years ago and when i was a kid 40 years you know almost 40 years ago um it we all just played games so and you know what it's exciting because so i started with super mario brothers well i started with atari right so pac-man and and, uh, pitfall i remember loving pitfall but then getting into super mario brothers and now i you know right before i was on the podcast with you my son and i were playing super mario brothers so you know it's it's continued there and they love pac-man too i don't don't know it's something about these games (laughs) do you play them on the the nintendo like the original nintendo versions of those games I i did um get one of those uh like special NES Classic. Yeah, one of those classics. So we could uh, do the original, but they they've been liking playing on the Wii because we get to play at the same time. Oh yeah. So right. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, I gotta get a Switch now, so we can really like. <laughs> you do gotta get a Switch because they're awesome. But you know, I'm started like got them on the Wii because that that seems that seems about about right for them. <laughs> they're still yeah. You know, they're still like, how do I jump? You know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need to introduce those games to my kids because. Um, it's a lot like just jumping into the type of games that come out these days. Like even playing, um, oh, uh, Super Mario Odyssey. Like there's just a lot more to that game. Oh yeah. In terms of controls and stuff, <laughs> yeah, totally. Than playing the original Super Mario, and it's like um, we shouldn't ex- like expect kids to like get it, you know, right away. I should I should probably pare down what I Although play with they my do, kids and introduce. Don't them they have that like simple mode in? Super Mario Odyssey, like you can enable like a like a simplified oh, yeah. mode or something. Yeah, yeah. My daughter's messed around with that a little bit. Yeah. We need to try it again, probably. See how it goes. But. So, Karen, um, growing up, like one of the things we like to ask people is like re- about religion. Like, was that a part of growing up? Because I think that's something for a lot of people. It kind of informs the way that they sort of develop and what they do with the rest of their life. Like, was that a part of your upbringing at all? Religion? Well. Definitely culturally, mm-hmm. um, my family is not religious, but we we are Jewish and we are culturally Jewish. Mm-hmm. So that you know, I did go to Hebrew school, and I did. I might be the only one who enjoyed going to Hebrew school. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what is that like for people who aren't familiar with Hebrew school? What does that mean? Like, what did you do? Yeah, so that's a great question. What did I do? I know I had to go three <laughs> days a week, and that was that's quite a bit. You know, three days a week beyond just going to regular school. Yeah. Oh, okay, so this is an addition to yeah, it was your public totally school. Addition. So I would yeah. go to public school, a normal, everyday public school. I'd come home, and then we'd all carpool over to the synagogue. And basically, it was like two two hours or maybe like an hour and a half, like let's say 4.30 to 6.30. I, I don't remember the same the exact times, but that would be like Monday and Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. on Sundays, we'd go in the mornings and basically do like a mini service. Um, okay. I know almost nothing <laughs> based on that. Though. We learned, I mean, we learned the Hebrew language. 
Uh, And we learned about the holidays. But the problem is they taught us like the biblical Hebrew, not conversational Hebrew. If they taught us conversational Hebrew, maybe we would know some of it. And that would actually be kind of cool and useful. Mm -hmm. But they just taught us like how to read like scripture or or not scripture. I don't even know, like the Torah. Um, Mm -hmm. Because they were trying to prepare us to be able to do, uh, you know, to lead our own service during Shabbat. Yeah. Now, what was interesting is that when I, when I was going to Hebrew school, and I went to a conservative Hebrew school, even though we there's different levels of being Jewish, like you know, levels, like different sure. denominations. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't even know how to compare it to any other religion because I just don't know enough about the others. But there's like Reform, or um, there's conservative, there's Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Um, Orthodox tends to be the most like you know, adhering to like religious law. I, I, I'm not doing this justice because I really like kosher food laws and things like that. Conservatives kind of like the Goldilocks. It's like not too, um, <laughs> not too light, but like not too heavy. It's like just right. It's in the middle. I, and I, by the way, I'm not religious at all. So I, it's, it's just like, you know, some people sure. might be on the more religious side, but maybe not. Anyway, the rabbi at the time, and the rabbi is kind of like the religious leader, um, uh, didn't let women do Shabbat, um, lead any Shabbat services mm. on Saturdays for their their bat mitzvah. And bat mitzvah is kind of like this, I don't know how to put it, like a celebration of becoming an adult. Yeah, that like happens coming of age kind of thing. Like traditionally, like only men were allowed to do that, but then women were allowed. And um, I was to become a bat mitzvah. And they wouldn't let me do the service on a Saturday. And my parents really did not want to have a Friday night service because then that means like you're having your party afterward and it goes like really like midnight. And they didn't want that. They wanted a daytime party. So what I did. For convenience reasons. Mostly for convenience. Yeah. But I think. Yeah, I think they were kind of like, why can't women have it on Saturday? It's like, ridiculous. Oh, right, sure. Yeah. So on Sunday, I did actually a special service, which was on Sunday, um, a Sunday service. And for that, you don't do a half Torah. It's like twice a year type of thing. I, I couldn't even tell you. I-, I knew more about it when I was 13 than I do now. Mm. Um, basically, it's something to do with like the new moon. And anyway, it was yeah. a special Sunday service. I basically had to lead all of the songs for the service. And part of doing a Sunday service is that you also give a speech. And in my speech, I basically said, you know, why aren't women allowed to have <laughs> to lead the services oh, on uh, Saturday? Oh, so I think even then I was starting to think about like social justice and yeah. fairness and equality and equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I may, I remember people still talk about that speech, <laughs> you know, wow. 20 years later, like, wow, like you That's cool. were saying things that should have been said to the rabbi. Um, and you know, he wasn't too happy about it. Right. <laughs> I was going to ask if you got any feedback from the rabbi. He wasn't happy about it because I yeah. was really criticizing speech for that. You know, he was conservative, but more on the Orthodox side. And he ended up actually leaving the synagogue um, not long after that. And they actually changed it not long after that. So now Sal women can have Saturday services. So you I, were I like... Because of my speech, but, you know, <laughs> it, it, you know, maybe that was like the final... The final it can't have hurt. Yeah, can't have hurt. It sounds like. 
Well, it depends on whose and, perspective, I guess, but in yeah, our perspective, yeah. it but, didn't hurt. I mean, the thing, is, the thing about being Jewish is like there is this idea of tikkun olam, which is like repair the world, and you always want to kind of leave the world a better place. Um, hmm. And I think tikkun olam, is that what you said? Yeah, tikkun olam. It's like you want to leave the world a better place and you want to uh, repair it and yeah. try to you know, try to make it a better world. And mm. I think that's something that is, you know, always driven me. Um, my dad did run for a while. He was a professor and also administrator at a college, but he also ran a Holocaust Museum and Diversity uh, Center for Human Understanding on, on Long Island. Mm. And I think that also, you know, that kind of cultural understanding and wanting to connect people from all different religions and all different cultural backgrounds and different races and mm-hmm. different, you know that's always been yeah. something that has been important to me and it's driven my work and kind of wanting to kind of marry the interest in social justice and education with like my like interest in like creativity and technology and science you know to me this this really kind of brings together so many different areas yeah. that I'm interested in and you know that's that is what I'm doing yeah that's cool yeah, that's so. It's interesting to me because you know you said you're not religious now anymore, but it sounds like that some of the ideas of your religious upbringing, like the tikkun olam and things like that, certainly have a uh, impact your perspective and and how you engage the world of games and, and things. And um, that's cool. That's really cool. Do you do you have do you sense that? Like, do you sense that about yourself or or I don't know. What, what, I know your perspectives change now, so I want to honor that. Yeah, I mean, it's I, you know, it's hard to know like what part of you got came from what. Uh, you know, sure. I think that yeah. people are always evolving and always trying to grow in different ways, and mm-hmm. you're you know, you end up being inspired by your family and your upbringing, and also to some extent your religion. But you know, it's also like the values that my parents shared with me, you know, are those from their religion or is it just culturally passed along? Or, you know, I know that ethics and, and caring about others and compassion and empathy, like those are values that are really strong, um, important to my parents and important to me. So I think that, you know, I don't know where that came from, but it's you know, yeah. always been part of our family. Um, yeah. But also like, like on the flip side, like my parents are such questioners and they're always trying to, they're so curious and they're so much trying to kind of understand the world in mm-hmm. that way. Like, for example, when I, when I write a book or if I, um, work on a project, like they'll ask me harder questions than anyone else. Like when I went <laughs> from my, like when I was at MIT and I went for my thesis, I, you know, I had to, uh, present present my thesis or like do my dissertation at Columbia and I had to like you know give like a presentation and get get questioned during it and the the questions I got from my parents were so much more challenging Hmm. um, but also prepared me (laughs) for any other questions I could possibly get so you know it's I think the idea of questioning is kind of like a Jewish kind of way of being in the world and like even questioning your own faith and questioning your own um yourself and your own religion is part of mm-hmm. a, is like a quote-unquote jewish thing now is it could it be part of other religions yes of course and could, could empathy and you know 
caring about others be part of other religions. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, I, I don't know if it's being Jewish or it's just, um, you know, it's who you happen to be. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Well, I know you said you got to get going. Uh, you have a limited amount of time today, so I want to respect that. Um, but, uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast yeah. and, uh, where can people find you online? Like, what's the best way to follow the work that you're doing? Well, probably the best way is on Twitter. And my Twitter name is Dr. Gamer Mom. So that's DR Gamer Mom. I kind of just yeah. took the three areas that, that are me <laughs> and kind of mushed them together into a, a Twitter handle. Yeah. If I had a doctor, a doc, if I had a doctor, <laughs> if I had a PhD, that's the word. Uh, I would try. I would go after Doctor Gamer Dad right now. So, mm-hmm. but I don't. So I can't. But that I think it's a pretty great Twitter handle. So thanks. Yeah. Uh, and then so so we, that's the best place to kind of follow the work you're doing. And I know you you said you have a book coming out pretty soon. You want to tell us the name of that one again? Yeah. So there's a few edit? books. One is Learning Education and Games: 100 Games to Use in the Classroom, and that will be out probably this summer through ETC Press. And then I have another book coming out that will be on using games to teach ethics and civics. And I'm hoping that will be out just in time for the 2020 elections in the, in the United States. <laughs> oh yeah. Great. So you'll get, get, get us all fixed yes, in please. that regard. <laughs> now uh, that's, that's awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we definitely encourage people to go check out your work and go read your books. Um, I would love to have you on again. There are so many questions I wanted to ask you about ethics and game design. Yeah. I know you've thought a lot about that subject. So maybe we'll have you on again and, and do some kind of like roundtable discussion about about that subject. So, um, so yeah. Anyway, uh, thanks so much, Karen. This was awesome. Thank you. This was really great. Yeah, yeah. And you can follow us on Twitter, Love Thy Nerd. I'm on Twitter, Druidix82. Uh, if you want to follow Love Thy Nerd on any of the social medias, just search for Love Thy Nerd. Also, go ahead and ask to join the Love Thy Nerd community on Facebook. Just look, just search for Love Thy Nerd community on Facebook. Once we make sure you're not a robot, we'll let you in. And you can nerd out about nerdy stuff with other nerds. Uh, and that's about it for us. We have a whole podcast network. So go check out our other podcasts, Free Play and The Pull List. Um, and uh, go rate and review those and tell your friends about them. So uh, that's it for us. Thanks again for listening to Humans of Gaming. We'll see you next time.